0: Covex
1: Welcome back for part two of our X-Men discussion. Um, In our last episode, we talked about the comics and the video games uh, about the X-Men or or, or that involved the mutant characters. Um, If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you go back and do that before listening to this one. Uh, But for this episode, we'll dive into the 11 X-Men and or X-Men related films, minus Deadpool and uh, 1 and 2, as we've covered those films in two different episodes, uh, one public and one Patreon exclusive episode. Um, We're also going to talk about the three animated shows including uh, Wolverine uh, and the X-Men, uh, X-Men Evolution, uh, but we're not, go- not stopping there. Uh, there are two X-Men series uh, TV shows as well, including Legion and The Gifted, and we're going to talk about those as two. Um, now, I've mentioned a couple times times uh, that I basically quit reading comics uh, when I was 16, but I did not explain why. Uh, my dad forced me to sell my comics because I, quote, liked them too much. Uh, what was worse was that I didn't even get to keep the money. I had to give it to his church. Uh, That really ruined comic for me for for years. Um, I mean, I was 30 before I ever got back into them. And even then, I never picked up picked back up on reading the X-Men. It was not due to a lack of interest, but rather not knowing where to jump on. Um, all of that to say the the movies and, and the TV shows were a way for me to get back into the X-Men without having to read 14 years worth of comics to catch up. So I really appreciated the movies a lot. Uh, but that is not the case with my friend and co-host Steve Sellers. In fact, as you could tell by the last episode, he's been waist deep in the X-Men for a really long time and even writes a column about it for the comic crusaders. So before we dive into X-Men from 2000, was there anything you wanted to say, Steve?
0: Uh, Sure. It is definitely true that if you're not steeped in X-Men to a certain extent, it becomes very easy to get lost in the wilderness of X content. Um, That's true even of the modern-day comics. I mean, I haven't followed a lot of the stuff since the Krakoa run started, and even that involves a ton of catch-up, And that was only a few years ago. Uh, So I totally understand uh, that problem. Um, But fortunately, there are a lot of guideposts in the world of the X-Men, and the movies adapted a lot of the right things, even if they change up a lot of things, too. So why don't we talk about where the film started?
1: Oh, sure, Steve. Um, let's get into the very first X-Men film. Now, X-Men came out in 2000 and, and was one of the films responsible for the big comic book movie craze, along with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy uh, that we're seeing the dying ends of today. Uh, the film was directed by Bryan Singer and written by David Hayter uh, from a story by Singer and Tom DeSanto. Uh, the casting on this film was really good, in my opinion. They picked up Hugh Jackman, an unknown actor at the time, to play Wolf. Wolverine. Wolverine. And while he is way too tall, and I would have preferred someone more like, say, Glenn Danzig, um, Hugh Jackman nailed the Wolverine personality. So I was able to overlook the rest. Uh, But they also got Patrick Stewart to play Professor X. And I'll tell you something. Uh, I said for a while that if anyone was going to play Charles Xavier, it had to be Patrick Stewart. And this was long before the casting. Uh, you, you don't you don't get a, your dream casting often. Uh, so I was very excited when I heard about that. But they got uh, some other other great actresses and actors as well, including Ian, Ian McKellen uh, to play Magneto, Halle Berry to play Storm. A perfect casting, I might add. Famke Jansen to play Jean Grey, uh, James Marsden who played an excellent Scott Summers, in my opinion. Uh, Bruce Davidson, uh, Rebecca Romijn. Uh, another perfect casting is Mystique. Uh, Ray Park is Toad Uh, Tyler Mayne is Sabretooth that's the same guy who played Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie Halloween film by the way Uh, so a big and scary is actually kind of his thing (laughs) but anyway Mm -hmm. Anna Paquin is Rogue Um, her character was a bit different than I was used to but I I thought she did well with her part yeah I did as well I mean she has a very different character but we'll get into that in a little bit
0: Um, at the time the movie came out I was so pleasantly surprised with how much they got right with X-Men, so much so, in fact, that I went and watched it in the theater three times, uh, something that I rarely do for comic book movies, and I have not done that in a very long time. Um, up to that point, we hadn't often seen uh, comic actor castings in those films, and this, along with uh, Rami Spider-Man, uh, changed comic book movies. Um, but even with the height, I loved Hugh Jackman as Logan, and you had other perfect or near-perfect choices, like Patrick Stewart, uh and McKellen, and James Marsden. Oh, yeah. And this is a fun little bit. Uh, George Busa, who played uh, Beast on X-Men, the animated series, was the truck driver in the film. Um, Anyway, even though there were elements I had issues with here and there, I mean, the movie got so much right that it was easy to forgive those things. Um, I don't think the movie has aged that well, but at the time, uh, X-Men was a breath of fresh air and it showed the possibility of what superhero team movies could be
1: personally enjoyed watching it again recently for this episode a lot, uh, but I'll get into that in a second. Uh, 2000s X-Men movie shows us a world where there are billions of mutants, although their exact number is not known. Uh, this, This not knowing uh, who is and who isn't a mutant uh, leads to paranoia about it. Uh, That is compounded by the fact that mutants having superpowers uh, and they bring up characters like Kitty Pryde, uh, although not by name in this first film, who can walk through walls. And they legitimately bring up security concerns with someone walking around out there with powers like that. Uh, What would stop them from robbing a bank or going into the White House or the Pentagon? This, of course, just feeds into the distrust that is already building, and they eventually call for the Mutant Registration Act. Uh, Marvel likes to register people. Um, While all of this is going (laughs) on 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 the movie, follows two characters, uh, Wolverine and Rogue, in a subplot as they both encounter Charles Xavier's school and the X-Men and Magneto and his brotherhood. Two very conflicting ideologies about bringing uh, about acceptance of mutant kind.
0: Uh, They got the ideological aspect down very well, True. Um, The only thing I want to add is that this movie gives Senator Robert Kelly a clear and understandable point of view. I mean, even if he's driven by fear and racism. I mean, from his perspective, he's trying to keep people safe from people who he sees as almost like living weapons. Uh, The speech he gives in the Senate where he talks about Kitty makes a certain amount of sense. and, And that's really the danger of someone like Kelly. What starts off at first sounding like laws being passed in the interest of safety could end up leading to horrible consequences for an entire group of people just because they happen to be bored a certain way. Um, I like that the film raises these kinds of questions and doesn't provide any easy answers about what the solution is. Also, Kelly isn't, really isn't a bad guy at all deep down. I mean, he thinks he's legitimately doing the right thing. And that too can be dangerous. Um, Robert Kelly is a really fascinating character, and I'm glad that they got, kept the complexity that he had in the books. I'll also add that Bruce Davison got that down perfectly in his performance.
1: I like that a lot, too. In fact, as a general rule, I prefer it when a villain has a point of view uh, that I can see, even if I disagree with what they're doing about it. But if I could comment on the film itself for a moment, I have to say I, I, I like the opening scenes of 2000s X-Men as it's very brilliantly written and, and, and done uh, just I mean perfect I I honestly can't Imagine a better way of opening the film Um, But we'll get a lot I mean we get a lot of information uh, Without feeling like an info dump And of course you get Professor Charles Xavier Explaining how mutants fit Into the science of evolution uh, By evolution leaping forward every few Millennia Uh, then we immediately Go to see seeing Eric Lyncher as a boy uh, long before He would become Magneto uh, at the Processing station in Auschwitz He is taken from his mother and she freaks right out about it and with good cause. Uh, There's a very good chance they will never see each other again. And who knows what horrors await them. At first, Eric is scared and hides, but when his mother starts screaming out for him, his love for his mother conquers his fear and he tries to get to her and scream out for her as well. Uh, Props to the actors who play young Eric and his mother. Uh, They, they really made you feel the intensity of that moment. Um, I was in a situation uh, where I was terrified I had no idea I was going on or, or why. And I was screaming out for my mother as a boy and uh, as, they, as they took her out of the room. And and I was getting my I was getting my tonsils taken out at the time. So nothing at the same level. Uh, but being separated uh, from your family by Nazis, that scene in the movie just takes me right back there. Uh, then. You add to that the coldness and brutality of the Nazis, and you get why Eric pulled down that metal gate, reaching out for his mother with enough force to drag several Nazis with him as they tried to hold him back. That is honestly one of the most powerful scenes I have ever seen in a movie. Then, of course, uh, uh, Marie de Dion Canto, AKA the future rogue almost uh, killed her boyfriend just by kissing him for a few seconds, uh, showing us that mutants, even with good intentions can still potentially kill people without even meaning to, um, Then we see the the hearing about the Mutant Registration Act, and you get a clear view of both sides of that argument. And I know that I can personally understand the fears of both sides. The thing that is really screwing things up is the growing prejudice and fear towards mutants causing attacks and hate crimes. But at the same time, what would stop a girl that can walk through walls from going into a bank vault or the White House? Or even more terrifying is the idea of a mutant who can enter our minds and control our thoughts like Charles Xavier. And so it appears that our fear wins out in the hearing that day. And Eric Lyncher, now an old man, is not happy about it, about the decision that day, and he plans to do something about it. Uh, But Charles tries to dissuade him, uh, knowing the things that Eric might do in the name of his cause. Uh, These scenes perfectly set the stage in a matter of minutes. We already know everything we need to know to dive right into the story. As a storyteller, I'm just impressed with how well this film unfolds.
0: Oh, likewise. I mean, this movie handled Magneto pretty well, I must say. They took elements of the Silver Age Magneto, but woven the Claremont backstory and the past with Charles, um, that was not a bad approach to take, really. Um, I feel as though the movie made you understand what uh, Magneto endured as a child, what he suffered through as a victim during the Holocaust. At the same time, his friendship with Xavier comes across as a genuine thing. And to be fair, some of it is that Stewart and McKellen are really great friends off screen. Uh, the other interesting thing here is that I actually like Magneto's plan in this movie. Um, his solution to the problem of racism against mutants is to make everyone a mutant. Uh, they allude to this earlier in the classroom scene with Storm, where Aurora teaches a lesson about how Christianity uh, became accepted when the Emperor Constantine converted. Um, it's a really clever bit of foreshadowing, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also like uh, that plan in general as forcing the people in position of power to become mutants would force their interests in line with Magneto's. And at the time, Magneto had no reason to think that anyone would truly be harmed by it. Uh, the problem is, is that the device wasn't sufficiently tested and Magneto didn't realize that Kelly had been killed by his own emerging powers. But the uh, basic idea he was aiming for is not an unreasonable solution from his point of view. Uh, I just love the moral ambiguity of this film where everyone is acting from rational self-interest and clearly defined ideological
1: reasons. That is an interesting bit of foreshadowing that I did not catch before with the Constantine reference by Storm. I I also didn't know that Kelly was already a mutant. Uh, I assumed that mutants got their powers during puberty. But I'm not sure I understand how that affected Senator Kelly's abilities. Uh, We see that other mutants get caught in it too, and it has no effect on them. I I guess my question is twofold. Uh, Why did Senator Kelly's powers emerge so late, and and how were they affected by the device?
0: Well, uh, technically, Kelly isn't a mutant, at least not in the sense that he was born that way. Uh, The machine turned him into that. But maybe he latent mutant genes that were activated by Magneto's machine, for all I know. Uh, The machine probably activated uh, Kelly's latent mutant genes, but it didn't kill Kelly the ability to control his power. Uh, Usually these kinds of powers come with innate fail-safes and immunities, but Kelly just didn't have that for some reason.
1: Ah, okay, that that makes sense. Uh, So just having the X gene doesn't mean you become a mutant. It could totally be latent. Uh, I guess that makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. Uh, They say that the X gene is passed down through the father. And there are certainly many mutant stories about being the only mutant in the family. Like Bobby's parents ask him if he's tried not being a mutant uh, because when his powers developed, he became an outsider in his own family. Uh, But back to the film, Uh, you know, I always felt like the last half of the 2000 X-Men film felt a little rushed. Um, Things like earlier in the film Scott had to, Scott had to blow a hole in the roof for storm to use her powers when they were at the train station um, indoors. Uh, But later on when she's fighting toad, she doesn't have access to the outside until the end of that fight scene. And even then you'll notice that the wind is still coming from indoors, not outside. Uh, They've, they violated their own rule and that usually means something changed uh, in this particular case it was that the studio was shuffling things around X-Men was originally supposed to start filming in June or July of 1999 and it was set to release in Christmas of 2000 but Fox ended up with an opening in June of 2000 when one of their other films was delayed so Fox put X-Men in that spot which left Brian Singer to finish the film in six months six months ahead of schedule uh, in he was that he was currently working on uh, This was compounded by the fact That Fox also delayed singer's Start date until September of 1999 which left him two months Less to do the film just imagine Getting eight months shaved off of your Production time and making a film Apparently, Singer did some uh, very inappropriate things using his position in the movie, like giving young actors small roles in the film in exchange for sex, and bringing young men to very unprofessional meetings, even by eccentric standards. Uh, top this off with temper tantrums, mood swings attributed to back pain medication, uh, were an issue on the uh, with the crew. Uh, I mean, but so I mean, really, honestly, after reading all of that, uh, I have to say I have much less sympathy for the studio screwing with the schedule.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't say that I do either. I mean, Singer's a problematic figure to be kind about it. But it is true that the film has its imperfections. I mean, leaving, even leaving aside uh, behind-the-scenes problems, um, a lot of people to this day still laugh at the uh, what happens to a toad who's been struck by lightning scene. Um, that line was written by Joss Whedon, who um, at that time was a script doctor on the film. Uh, he claimed that the problem wasn't the line itself, but the way it was delivered. Maybe that was true for all I know, but either way, it just
1: comes across as a bit silly the way it's filmed. Agreed. That, that line was just terrible. And now that I know Whedon wrote it, it, it makes all the more sense.
0: Yeah. In, in terms of characters, though, I think my biggest issue is Rogue, honestly. Um, the Rogue that we see in this movie is essentially a composite of Rogue and Kitty. Uh, the origin and the powers are basically Rogue, and the costume takes a bit from the Paul Smith outfit but the personality in the story roles are is more or less kitty. I, I get that there was already a ton of characters in this thing, but I think it's unfortunate that we didn't get to see Rogue in all her complexity, uh, the way that we did in X-Men, the animated series, um, her complicated past with mystique, her guilt over having permanently destroyed a woman's life, uh, dealing with ghosts in her head that she can't control. Um, if I remember correctly, I mean, even Anna Packin wanted to play the rogue from the comics. And while she did a great job in the film, it's a missed opportunity, but in fairness, I will say that Anna Packin is a great, is great opposite of Wolverine. And that relationship really is charming on screen and it works well.
1: I have to agree with all of that. I never thought Rogue was Rogue in the films, even if I did like her relationship with logan you know they were both outsiders among outsiders and that was a cool bond uh it particularly got weird later uh when they actually introduced kitty pride to the franchise uh but we can talk about that in a minute Uh, but on that note i'd like to switch topics to x2 uh, aka x2 x-men united um, X2 came out in 2003. Again, despite his shenanigans, X2 was directed by Brian Singer and written by Michael Dougherty, uh, Dan Harris, and David Hader from the story by Singer, Hader, and Zach Penn. The movie features the same cast for the, uh, from the first film, uh, but of course adds some new ones like Brian Cox as Colonel William Stryker, uh, the guy responsible for Wolverine's adamantium skeleton and claws, uh, who used him as a weapon on countless missions, uh, which we will see a little of an X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, they got Alan Cumming to play Kurt Wagner, aka Nightcrawler, and that was another amazing casting. Uh, Cumming was exactly how I remembered Nightcrawler. Uh, Sean Ashmore came on to play Bobby Drake, aka Iceman, uh, Rogue's love interest. Aaron Stanford and as uh, John uh, Allardyce, as uh, aka Pyro, or as I call him, the Bully Trader. Uh, Kelly, who mm-hmm. came on to play uh, Yuriko uh, Ayama, a.k.a. Lady Deathstrike. And while her character was cool in the movie, knowing that her and Wolverine were deeply in love at one point and not having that in the film bugged me a bit. Um, there were a few other cameo scenes with other characters like Colossus, Kitty Pride, Jubilee and others. Uh, but only Kay Wong and uh, Daniel Cudmore stayed on as Jubilee and Colossus in the next film.
0: Um, The background characters get recast a lot, but at least they kept the core cast. Anyway, um, X2 uh, drew pretty heavily on one major story from the comics, and it's honestly one of my favorite Claremont stories. That story is God Loves, Man Kills, and that is the story that introduced the Striker from the comics, and he is very different from the Striker you see in X2. Um, That story dealt with an evangelical ministry that preached anti-mutant hatred, and it was very much a story that dealt with the dangers of religion but that's something you can't really do 20 years later when televangelism is no longer really a thing anymore. So I get that things had to change, but it does not me a bit as a fan of the original comics. Um, and well, I want to point out one small role that jumped out at me as well. Um, one of the soldiers working for Stryker was played by We. Uh, peter wingfield um fans of highlander the tv series will recognize him as mythos um a five thousand year old immortal and a friend of duncan mcleod it's a fairly small role but i love the idea of mythos posing as this minor soldier working for striker <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that certainly doesn't sound anything like the striker in the films i mean at all uh, i i suppose the one thing they really have in common is their fanaticism uh, but I will talk about Stryker in a minute. Um, for now, I just have to say, holy crap! Did X Two X Men United have some awesome, have an awesome opening with Nightcrawler? Uh, My understanding is that the studio cut a danger room scene as well as uh, Nightcrawler and Beast from the original script uh, because they were not sure how well the film would be received. And Beast and Nightcrawler would have meant an additional budget of $5 million. Uh, But seeing that scene of Nightcrawler just bamping from place to place, messing up those secret servicemen was awesome and well worth the money. The cool cool part uh, was not that they were secret servicemen and that they were getting messed up, but the choreography itself. Just a, r- a real treat to see Nightcrawler at his most badass. The only thing I think that would have made it more perfect would have been if he had his swords. Uh, but as as it is, I, I, I shouted in the theater when I first saw him. <laughs> but they sure figured out uh, that they needed Nightcrawler and Dr. Hank McCoy, a.k.a. Beast, in the sequel. I remember being super excited that Nightcrawler was going to be in the film, and I thought that Alan Cumming did a top-notch job playing Kurt Wagner. Am I right, Steve?
0: Absolutely he did. Uh, Alan Cumming was near perfect as Nightcrawler. I, I cannot complain about his performance at all. That opening sequence of Kurt just teleporting all over the place, avoiding every shot and using his powers inventively to take down all the agents was spot on. That is absolutely how Kurt would fight. But then they got the circus acrobat side of him too. I mean, the way that he describes himself as the amazing Nightcrawler, it's totally Kurt but he also has these good quiet moments like when he's talking about his faith or having these quiet moments with Aurora. Uh, the swords would have been cool, especially if they could have pulled off the three sword trick with a tail.
1: But yeah. as it is, I'm still really happy with Kurt the way we got him. I am too. In fact, that Nightcrawler scene was not the only badass fight scene in the film. X2 actually had uh, two very cool fight scenes. The first one I've already mentioned with Nightcrawler. Uh, That was just bitching way to start out the movie. But my favorite part of X2 was the fight between Lady Deathstrike and Wolverine at Alkali Alkali Lake. Uh, It would have been better with the backstory of her and Logan once being in love, uh, uh, but but damn, that was cool. Lady Deathstrike really screwed him up good. Uh, there's that one time where she stabs him in the back with her very long nails like five times in maybe a second and a half. <laughs> just just burly. And, and what an awesome death scene too. Uh, what was your favorite part of X2, Steve? Uh, both of those were really
0: great scenes. And the Nightcrawler opener especially is a favorite of mine. But I also like the escape at the end with the tease that Jean Grey slowly tapping into the Phoenix Force in order to save the team. Uh, There was also the bit with Mystique turning into Jean in order to seduce Logan, but he's able to sniff her out with his super senses. And then Magneto's escape from the plastic prison was also really epic, with Magneto being able to control the iron in the guard's blood, which is a trick he's used in the comics, by the way. Um, There are a lot of really uh, cool little scenes that work really well in this film.
1: Ah, there really are. After my recent rewatch, I have grown a whole new fondness for the original trilogy. Uh, But that first film especially. Uh, But back to X2, X-Men United. Uh, I just have to comment on how much they really make you hate Stryker in that film. Uh, Not only does he view mutants like a disease and refers to them as the mutant problem in the film, you find out that he, he sent his own son to Charles so that Charles could quote unquote cure him. Uh, (laughs) Uh, to cure Jason of being a mutant. Um, After Charles tries to convince Stryker that uh, being a mutant was not a disease, Stryker insists that they all are. Um, Then bringing out his own son, Uh, Jason to manipulate Charles' mind into locating all of the mutants in the world, using Cerebro and killing them. Charles tries to point out what Stryker has done and is doing to his own child when he sees that Jason has clearly undergone some type of uh, surgery as he has cyborg implants. Uh, But right in front of his own son, Stryker says that his son is dead. That is some cold shit all on its own. But then Stryker turns super evil, in my opinion, with his emotional manipulation of his son, who clearly longs for his father's approval. When Stryker whispers in Jason's ear, make me proud as he leaves. I wanted to stick things in his eyes when I heard that. Manipulating and using your own children who long for the approval and acceptance of their parents while crushing them with verbal abuse is wicked in my eyes. And that's, not, that's to say nothing about kidnapping mutants, what he did to Logan, or all the things he did against mutants in general. It was very satisfying to see him get his in the end.
0: Oh, totally. Uh, Stryker is a character that had a good first appearance uh, and then he wore out his welcome in later films. I mean, after a while, I would groan every time I see him and he's in almost every single X-Men film from here on. His overuse later makes you almost forget though how good he is here. Um, I prefer the Stryker from the comics, but they took a few elements from that that really work in this film. Uh, The bit with his son being a mutant did come from God Loves Man Kills. Though we didn't survive for adulthood in the book, but They managed to make
1: Stryker more insidious in this version, and I cannot deny it worked for x 2 All right. So last but not least in the original X-Men trilogy is 2006's X-Men The Last Stand. And they pulled out all the stops for this one. Uh, we get Benny Jones, uh, who I knew uh, from Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, playing Kane Marco, aka the Juggernaut. Uh, we get a Danger Room scene, which I had been, which had been coming since the first film. Uh, we get to see Ben Foster play Warring Worthington III, aka Angel, and we get to see Senator Hank McCoy, aka Beast, all within the first ten minutes of the film. Uh, they came out swinging with this one for sure. You, you even get uh, the uh, Callisto, uh, Caliban, and Quill, and for some reason, uh, Kid Omega in the who is. Or for some reason, Quill is called Kid Omega in the credits um, uh, from the Morlocks. Anyway, in this one, although they call themselves uh, the Omegas in the group, not the Morlocks. uh, You know, I toyed around with uh, who I thought would be best uh, to play Beast back when I first heard uh, they were bringing him on. And I could not have picked or imagined a more perfect casting than Kelsey Grammer. Uh, what a lot of folks might not suspect from Beast is that he is the scientist of the team and he's highly intelligent and even studies philosophy. Uh, sure, he has a primal side that uh, he can let out when he wants to, and that is why he gets the beast name from. But other than that, he is one of the kindest, gentlest, most considerate people in comics that, that I know of anyway. Uh, so to get a guy who can play an intelligent and educated man like Hank McCoy, look no further than the guy uh, known for playing Dr. Fraser Crane. Uh, everybody already associated his face with, with that character, and he got Hank's personality perfectly. And I was surprised how well Grammar pulled off the ferocity. Uh, that was one area I was sure he was going to fall flat in, and I'm happy to say that I was wrong.
0: Yeah, now, um, I'm not a huge fan of this film for quite a few reasons, but when I, before I get into that, I'll talk about some of the positives. Um, there are some definite saving graces in this film, and the casting of Kelsey Grammer as Hal Hank McCoy is certainly one of them. I feel like he nailed that role, and I hate that the only time we see him after this is at the end of Days of Future Past, after which we never see Grammer's Beast again. So if you want to see that, uh, this is pretty much all we get. Um, I also liked uh, Juggernaut and Multiple Man a lot. Um, I don't remember who played Jamie Madrox, but he got the basics down from the little screen time he gets. And I dig that they borrowed elements from uh, Joss Whedon's Gifted story, and they gave Rogue an interesting inner struggle about whether to keep her powers or not. Unfortunately, though, whenever this movie tries to tackle Dark Phoenix, this cracks start to show in the script. Um, one of the things that I honestly hate about this film is the way they did Cyclops dirty. This movie shoehorns Jean and Logan together by killing Scott in the first act, and they kill him in the most anticlimactic way possible. All this when Cyclops had already been steadily been pushed aside in favor of Wolverine and never given a chance to shine. And then not only does Wolverine get shoved into the role that should have been Scott's and is less believable in that role than Scott would have been, he undermines Jean's sacrifice by being the one to kill her. It should have been Scott who should have been talking Jean back to her real self and Jean who needs to sacrifice herself. But unfortunately, it's all about Logan. Um, Logan is a great character and all, that. this is not his story. I I just got the feeling that the people who were brought in after Singer left wanted to promote Wolverine as the hero of the movie to such an extent that everybody else takes a backseat. And worse, they did it without understanding the story they were adapting. Um, The Dark Phoenix Saga is a very difficult story to adapt well, to be fair, but this was exactly the wrong way to do it.
1: I can certainly see the validity of all those points, particularly as it pertains to Scott and the relationship between Logan and Gene. Uh, They blew that there for sure. And honestly, the creators thought as much as well. Uh, but we'll get into that in our Dark Phoenix discussion in a bit. Uh, so I have to ask you uh, what you thought of Elliot Page as Kitty Pride in X3. I know she's an important character to you, and I wanted to know your take on their version of the character. Also, was it weird to you that Iceman and Rogue had a thing and that they hinted at, at, at a bit of a love triangle with Kitty Pryde?
0: Um, I enjoyed the Elliot Page as Kitty quite a bit. I feel like uh, Kitty got the right look and she gets some good moments. Um, the scene where she runs from Juggernaut and uses her phasing to get away from him was a good kitty moment, for example. Um, I also liked her a lot in the future scenes and days of future past as well. Um, as for the whole rogue Iceman Kitty thing, yeah, I wasn't crazy about any of that. Uh, I felt like by that point, Iceman and Rogue were a pretty solid couple who had paid their dues together. And then you get this forced tension with Kitty, who never really seemed to work with Iceman. And then the way it was handled was a bit clunky. I mean, the love triangle is another one of those things I try to ignore about this film. And honestly, it's not really needed anyway since Rogue's decision about taking the cure should have been her main story anyway. It's something that Rogue and Bobby can have a disagreement about and find a way to work through together.
1: Oh, once again, we are in complete agreement here. I I particularly think that bit with Kitty was off and and it really felt forced. It also didn't seem like Bobby uh, to hurt Rogue like that, even if it was a misunderstanding. Uh, also, Rogue's main story should have definitely been getting the cure. And I think as far as Bobby goes, I think their story should have been reflected on the different should have reflected the different points of view on the subject. Uh, but I did like that Bobby ultimately respected and appreciated a Rogue's decision. Uh, you know, I watched this trilogy back to back in preparation for this episode, and I honestly liked the trilogy a lot more uh, being a bit older and seeing them one right after another. Um, it was it was like I wasn't able To pick up all of the threads in it And see how well the trilogy worked Together until now um, We see this concept of having uh, The mutant X gene as, as having A disease and, and a deformity That one should be ashamed of uh, in, their, in the other films and I, and I think The Last Stand brings this To its logical conclusion uh, I see now how the seeds Were planted in the first film And came to fruition in the final installment Of the trilogy In other words these films have aged very very well to the point that uh, i have a new appreciation for the films having watched them recently although they severely hinted at a fourth film with eric lyncher uh moving that metal chess piece uh and the man in the bed says hello to moira and moira mctaggart and and uh, to moira mctaggart and and she questioningly says charles I would have actually liked to have seen that. Uh, but the X-Men film series did continue in 2009. And I believe you had some stuff about to say about X-Men Origins Wolverine, didn't you, Steve?
0: Uh, yes. Um, many people hate X-Men Origins Wolverine, and I can totally understand why. Uh, we've talked in the Deadpool episode about how dirty that movie did Deadpool and where they got him wrong in this film. So um, I'd go back and listen to that if you want our detailed thoughts on that point. Um, so I'll just say that taking the mouth away from the Merc with a mouth was an extremely dumb decision, and leave it at that. Um, I, I think what about the first Wolverine film, though, is that it could have been a really amazing movie. Uh, the first half of this film, though, so is a really good Wolverine film. Um, I feel like uh, they did a good job of explaining Logan's past with Victor Creed, and the way they unfolded all that was really well done. And virtually everything up to Logan getting the adamantium team was really solidly done. And I love Leif Schreiber as Stabertooth. Uh, Tyler Mane had the physicality, but Shriek brought the menace to the role as well. So the way the second half uh, falls completely apart just saddens me, because it should have been so much better. Um, they try to do the Larry Hama twist with Silver Fox and the Weapon X program, manipulating o- Logan's entire life. But it comes across as a nonsensical mess, and then they ruin Deadpool. But let's get into what worked, Mike. Uh, did you have a favorite moment you wanted to talk about?
1: I feel pretty close to the same about X-Men Origins Wolverine. Although I really enjoyed about 80% of the film as opposed to 50%. I actually had several scenes in the film that I really enjoyed. I think my favorite part of the whole movie was the opening uh, of James Hewlett uh, first getting his claws and then killing the man who turns out to be his father, Victor's dad. Uh, That scene explains the differences between Victor and James. I think Uh, I consider that scene as part of uh, the one that followed, which was the montage with Logan and Victor fighting in all the wars. Uh, That was just an awesome opening to the film. And speaking of Victor and Logan fighting their fights were pretty, Pretty freaking sweet in this film. Uh, I think actually my favorite of theirs is actually when Logan gets his ass whooped by Victor in the lumber yard. Um mm-hmm. I also really like the mythology story of the uh, Kuei Kowatsu and how it reflects what happened to Logan. Uh, Kuei Kowatsu was fooled by the trickster into leaving the spirit realm to get flowers for the moon, just like Logan was fooled into believing he had found love and peace, aka the spirit world. But Kayla tricked him into getting flowers, aka taking revenge on her death, and now there is no way Logan could go back to the life he once had. That life, or even the possibility of it, was gone for him. The twist to the story is that the trickster was being manipulated by a devil, AKA striker. Logan had quit being a beast for a while and became a man and he was happy, Uh, but it was all a lie. I can see why he would have taken the name Wolverine after hearing that story, but, and, and and believing that Kayla had died and and also how much it would have would sting to hear the name. If, if he could remember where it came from later, Uh, Logan is very much the wolf in that story. Uh, another favorite scene was when Wolverine takes out those two trucks and a helicopter on that motorcycle. Not only was that a solid action sequence, I liked to see Wolverine experimenting with what he can do with his new claws. Uh, last but not least, I liked Gambit in the film. He did not even he, he did not even try to do the proper accent for the character. Uh, but I thought the attitude was good. I, I also liked how his powers were displayed in the film.
0: Yeah, uh, Gambit was okay, I, I thought. Not pitch perfect, but good enough. Um, but I think we're mostly in agreement. I, I'm with you on the use of the Native American mythology and tying it into Logan. Uh, that was a really clever idea, and that made sense to me. Now, um, I'm not a fan of the origin comic they based the beginning of the movie on. I prefer Logan to maintain some of his mystery. But when they moved on to Logan and Creed uh, fighting in every war since the Civil War, uh, moving from World War One to World War II to Vietnam, that worked really well. Uh, the montages give you a good snapshot of what Logan and Creed were like back then. Um, I also like the scene with Weapon X as a team. I mean, with Deadpool, Agent Zero, Wraith Blob, and the others breaking into that African businessman's tower. Uh, One interesting thing that I found in hindsight is that Agent Zero is Daniel Henney, who played Lan in Wheel of Time. And then you get uh, Dominic Monahan um, as that Cyberpath character, along with Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool. But just beyond the casting, you get a decently written Deadpool, and the dynamics between the squad members. I mean, there are also subtle references to Wakanda and Vibranium, uh, we were looking at the metal in Africa, and the vibranium was discovered in a sacred mound. So I, I kind of like the thought of the Weapon X squad doing black ops stuff in uh, Wakanda back during Vietnam. Uh, the movie lays out a lot of really cool ideas and some interesting characters that sadly don't matter much because the second half is so bad.
1: I I really like that part too. In fact, it was really it really wasn't until later in the film that they totally screwed up Deadpool. Uh, at that point in the film, he he's still pretty cool. Um, I also just like the idea of a black ops mutant squad, even if their morals and ethics were a bit off. Uh, That's, that's one of the reasons I wish I had read X factor actually. Uh, but if I could switch over to talking about one of the X-Men related series that came out that same year in 2009 called Wolverine and the X-Men uh, that I want to talk about here briefly. In Wolverine and the X-Men, that series starts off with the X-Mansion being destroyed in an explosion and Charles Xavier and Jean Grey disappear. Uh, the X-Men disband after this and have to be brought back together by the most unlikely of leaders in Logan. Uh, but while they were off on on their on their own lots happened like magneto forming the uh the peaceful genosha the terrorist organization known as the brotherhood of mutants and of course his acolytes uh more and more mutants are joining their numbers every day the actions of the group like the brotherhood of mutants and their and other mutants has led to a mass hysteria about mutants in general uh that led to uh, the led in great part by senator kelly bolivar trask and warren worthington jr angel's father uh, because of them, the Mutant Response Division, aka uh, MRD, uh, sometimes just called Marty's in the show, uh, was formed, uh, which is basically a group responsible for rounding up mutants who are treated as criminals. Add to that the Mutant Registration Act, the Sentinel Program, Mojo, and the Reavers, led by uh, a Spiral in a very silver samurai, samurai kind of outfit. And of course, other mutants like the Inner Circle of the Hellfire, uh, the Hellfire Club, Mr. sinners sinister and his marauders who are working for apocalypse a storyline that would have been picked up in the second season if there was one all of this works together to make a sentinel run world in ruins Controlled by Mastermold 20 years in the future Being fought by Charles Xavier Who can walk with special braces on his leg Bishop, Berserker, Domino Hellion, Kamal, Maro, uh, Magneto's daughter Polaris Rover, a sentinel who has befriended The group, uh, Banisher and Wolverine 20 years older And his uh, daughter Laura, X-23 uh, Wolverine manages to get A decent team together in the present too Including Beast, Iceman, Shadowcat Cyclops, Emma Frost. Lost Forge, Colossus, and Rogue, even though she initially joins the Brotherhood. Uh, Wolverine also digs into his past A bit and we get some cool weapon F- we- Weapon X stuff uh, but my Favorite episode has to be the Wolverine Versus Hulk episode where Nick Fury threatens to give the names of the X-Men to Senator Kelly if Logan Doesn't go kill the Hulk and stop the Wendigo lots of great actions And things get real interesting when the Wendigo and the pack he's created Get involved in the fight meanwhile In the future fighting the war Started in our present is Charles Xavier uh, the series I'm Unfortunately, only ran for one season and had 26 episodes. Honestly, I really liked the series, but I did not have the years of comic book reading behind me like you do, Steve. So I have to ask you what you thought of Wolverine and the X-Men.
0: Um, I actually haven't seen that much of it. Uh, just the odd episode here and there. But what I have seen wasn't too bad. It seems like they chose a pretty decent team of X-Men and they got the voice casting about right. Um, I'm guessing the involvement of Craig Kyle probably had something to do with that since he was involved with both uh, Evolution and some of the X-Men spin-off titles. It seems like they used an interesting group of supporting characters as well, and I'm not surprised to see X-23 involved with Kyle on board. Um, Kyle was one of her co-creators. So from what I've seen, it looks like they took a a bit of a darker slant on the X-Men, which isn't bad given the cast that they have there. Um, It is a shame that the show didn't last longer, unfortunately, but it happens sometimes. But why don't we get into the live-action films and what they went after X-3?
1: All right. Um, In 2011, we got what was supposed to be a reboot of the franchise with X-Men First Class. Although when the logo comes up on the screen, it just says X First Class. However, the second film in the reboot, Quadrilogy, uh, Days of Future Past retcons the original X-Men trilogy into the new continuity through the cast story and story, but especially through the opening and Wolverine through the movie. Uh, so I don't know what to call it now, a, a pre-boot? <laughs> anyway, X-Men First Class is the fourth main continuity film in the franchise and the fifth overall when you include X-Men Origins Wolverine, which, by the way, uh, this movie does not. In fact, it seems like Disney Plus wants to forget about X-Men Origins Wolverine as well as, as it has every, every other mutant movie on there but that film. Uh, X-Men uh, First Class was directed by Matthew Vaughn and produced by Brian Singer. The film has quite the cast as well, starring James McAvoy as Charles uh, Xavier. I thought this was a great pick, and I liked his portrayal of the younger Charles. He would go on to play the main character in Shyamalan's Split just five years later, which really impressed me and actually made me an even more fond of his uh, performance in the X-Men films. I also uh, was very pleased to see Michael Fassbender as Eric Lencher, AKA Magneto, again, a perfectly done performance by a superb actor that would impress me further uh, in the very, the very next year as David in Prometheus. And again, in 2017 with his role as Walter in alien covenant, I have a few more to mention. I especially loved the whole Nazi hunter thing going on in the first half. Uh, That was, that was an awesome storyline and Fassbender knocked it out of the park with that, Bar scene in particular, uh, but Professor X Magneto. Uh, Professor X and Magneto are such pivotal roles. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this one, Steve. Um, I generally like First Class quite a bit, and
0: I thought it was a needed film after X uh, Origins, Wolverine, and X3. I, I think the decision to reboot the X-Men was in part caused by the fact that X3 made such major changes that were difficult to reverse; that it was easier to look backwards and start over. I was okay with the movie taking that approach. Um, If I'm honest, I like Michael Fassbender's Magneto in the first class films even better than I like Ian McKellen's. Don't get me wrong. I think that McKellen had a great dynamic with Patrick Stewart, and he played a very solid villainous take on Magneto. But when Fassbender took the role and I saw the Nazi hunter scene, I saw Claremont's Magneto come to life. Um, He was as threatening and as certain of himself as Magneto would be. He had the self-righteousness and the presence that Magneto should have. And Fassbender understood the ruthlessness as well as the deep suffering that uh, Magneto endures as a Holocaust survivor. Once he put on the helmet, um, I got the feeling of Jim Lee's Magneto looking out towards the camera. And Fassbender
1: is consistently the best thing in these movies, even when the sequels aren't that good. You know, I just have to comment real quickly uh, for for listeners. Um, If you didn't pick it up in the last episode, what he just said about Michael Fassbender is some very high praise coming from my friend there. Um, we are on the same page with Fassbender. In my opinion, he is one of the greats currently out there, and he definitely captures all that you described there. I particularly love that whole Nazi hunter bit. That that was awesome, but please go on. Sure. Uh, James McAvoy is pretty good,
0: and he's a really solid actor. I, I did enjoy him in Split as well, and he was the voice of uh, Morpheus in the Sandman audio drama, and he's great in that. He does a good Charles Xavier, but um, a very different one than what we've seen previously. Um, Xavier was very much an adventurer in his younger days, someone who was a bit more reckless and daring, and I think McAvoy captured that. Um, I was a bit more bothered by the extent they took it in Days of Future Past, but it was generally a good approach to take with Xavier. Um, The Mystique thing opens up questions, but I rolled with it for the purposes of the movie.
1: I. Thought the mystique bit with growing up As Charles, Charles was a bit off uh, But it did work for the film And I too was able to just roll with it uh, But there's actually another character I want to touch on here for a minute as well While his role was a minor one And he didn't say much of anything I was impressed with seeing Jason Fleming As the red-skinned devil teleporter Zazel, who is the father of X-Men's uh, Kiwi Black and Nightcrawler By the way um, His character really showed us showed Just how scary Nightcrawler could be and had a menace about him. Uh, Maybe it was because it was so contrasting to Nightcrawler's peaceful and humble face, uh, but Fleming made Azazel scary in the film and his expressions fed into it by making it look like he was a sadist. Uh, January Jones did a great Emma Frost and certainly looked the part, so that was a good casting for sure. And last but not least, I think I like Kevin Bacon as uh, Dr. Claus Schmidt, a.k.a. uh, Sebastian Shaw, Granted, he didn't look the part or dress the part, uh, but he did have a great, he did a great job, in my opinion, playing that villain archetype and perceiving uh, of perceiving themselves as revolutionaries and having to do terrible things to bring about their glorious view of the future. Uh, Plus, Bacon Shaw is really easy to hate and, and those are entertaining villains.
0: They are, to be fair, although there was some license taken with them here. Um, The Azizel Nightcrawler thing in the comics is a bit complicated and it's based on a story called The Draco. Um, The story is inherently nonsensical and it goes like this. Um, Nightcrawler's father in the comics is an actual demon and he's trapped in a hell dimension. So he leaves the hell dimension to father children so that he can then escape the hell dimension he's supposedly trapped in. (laughs) The, The fatal flaw in the story probably doesn't need too much explanation. But still, here you go. If Azazel is trapped in a hell dimension, how is he leaving to sleep with the women? And if he can leave all along, why does he need to father demon children in the <laughs> first place? That's so ridiculous. But I, I also uh, just like the Azazel idea just because it makes Nightcrawler literally a demon. And that goes against the entire idea of Kurt's character. I mean, the point of Kurt is that he looks like a demon, but he isn't one. His appearance isn't who he is. But when you make him actually a demon, that kind of defeats the whole point. Not to mention that I prefer Mystique and Destiny as his parents anyway, but that's another can of worms that would move way too far from the subject at hand. That having been said, um, I did like Jason Fleming as Azazel in this film. Um, I just saw him as a different, unrelated character, and it was fine. Uh, He was a fun character to watch. Um, January Jones was a really solid Emma Frost, and I really wish she'd come back in the later films. Um, Sebastian Shaw, I have mixed feelings about. I'm He absolutely is not the Shaw of the books. Uh, The comic uh, Shaw is not a Nazi, for one thing. But they can place a character well, and and the villain
1: we get works in this movie. Man, again and again, we're coming across situations where not having all of the comic knowledge you have on the X-Men has made it possible for me to enjoy certain aspects of the film because they work in the movie setting. Uh, I just find that interesting, mm-hmm. uh, but let's talk yeah. a bit about some of the things that are different in these films. In this first film, they exchanged Xavier's relationship with Mystique, uh, as well as made uh, Cerebro, uh, as as well as who made Cerebro from Charles to Eric, uh, Charles and Eric to be to Beast. And speaking of Beast, I did like that Hank McCoy tried to fix his appearance, at least as far as his feet go, and it was and it is what ultimately turns him into his blue beast form uh, to my knowledge. That's what happened in the comics to explain why beast from the original X-Men series went from a more human form to that of a beast. Uh, beast was a character I liked from reading the comics and I was glad to see him get more comic accurate accurate entry here. And, and for the record, I don't have a problem with the changes in a movie. Um, Movies with changes, it, it, it's just a fact of the business. Uh, honestly, if people want things exactly like the source material, uh, they should just read the source material. Uh, but that's a rant for another time. Uh, the changes they made uh, make the story work better, in my opinion. And they, in many cases, at least attempt to show where the seeds were planted for the characters we came to know later.
0: Uh, that's fair. Beast um, origin of the comics are not too far removed from what we saw in the film. Um, Hank was working from a corporation as a scientist, uh, and he decided to perform an experiment on himself in the original. Um, Hank's original mutation was extremely large hands and feet, along with his natural strength and athletic ability. But when he took the formula he concocted, he turned gray and furry, which evolved uh, gradually into blue. And then later on, we'd get the cat form and other physical changes over the years. Um, I think the film incorporated the basic elements pretty well, while making changes that work for the story that
1: they were telling it sounds like it was pretty close then. So, so that works. I also thought that adding the CIA background to the X-Men, uh, as well as what got Charles and Eric looking for the other, uh, mutants was a cool idea in this setting. It works. It worked nicely with adding the Cuban missile crisis and the hellfire club. And it, it turned out to be a fun story. Um, I did not read much with the Hellfire Club, uh, but I liked the idea that there was this high society club of mutants who plotted to take over the world as mutant supremacists. Uh, Not to say that I'm in favor of what they what they uh, are, what what they, or rather, Sebastian Shaw did, uh, just that it shows Magneto uh, what a homo superior looks like in action. And despite Shaw's rhetoric describing becoming a monster because they are superior to humans, sounding a lot like Nazis saying they were superior and they became monsters, Eric Lyncher, being one of the superior ones Shaw, Shaw was talking about, suddenly liked the sound of that same speech. Uh, You know, they they made a point in the film about how every time a more evolved version of man has come into contact with a less evolved version of the... the extinction of that lesser version quickly followed. This seems to be Sebastian Shaw's ultimate goal. He talks about how radiation created the mutant gene and the nuclear war. He is starting with the Cuban Missile Crisis will kill off all the humans, but make mutants stronger. While Magneto disagrees with the nuclear option, he clearly adopts Sebastian Shaw's ideology of mutant superiority. Right.
0: Um, Interestingly enough, the CIA angle was a change to what happened in the silver age. Uh, the X-Men used to have ties to the FBI early on, so I think they just changed that to the CIA and ran with that. Uh, connecting that to the Cuban Missile Crisis was a really good move. But uh, it's hard. It, this is the origin of Xavier Magneto and how they went on their separate paths. Uh, we needed to see how Xavier lost the use of his legs, which set him on the path of being a teacher. Uh, we also needed to see Magneto lose his way and become an advocate for mutant supremacy before he can realize later that his way is wrong. Uh, We know where the story is going in the personal sense, and we know the crisis is averted, but the way the story gets there is where the fun really is.
1: I did not know that the FBI, about the FBI, so that actually makes that cooler. Uh, at least there was some type of government attachment there in the comics i also agree that the movie really lined all the ducks up in a row and i really like that about the film as well as how they did it particularly as as it comes to as it comes to eric learning mutant superiority from sebastian shaw that was cool uh but let's move on to the next film in the x-men franchise and that is the wolverine uh, so why don't you jump us right on into that steve
0: Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, The Wolverine was the next attempt to give Logan a solo film, and this one worked much better. It turned out that Hugh Jackman was a fan of the Chris Claremont, Frank Miller Wolverine comic, and he wanted to do something along the lines of that. Uh, Guillermo del Toro had been interested in directing the film initially, but he just didn't have the time to invest into it, and he had to drop out. And that led to uh, James Mangold into doing the Wolverine film, and as it turned out, it was a really good fit. Um, The Wolverine uh, borrowed a lot of the basic elements of the Claremont Miller limited series. Uh, the movie begins with a flashback of Logan saving a Japanese soldier named Yashida from the nuclear blast at Nagasaki. Uh, we get a flash forward to the present day with Logan having nightmares about his past. Um, after the death of Jean, uh, Wolverine goes to Canada for a while and he lives in the wilderness uh, putting aside the, the life of the superhero. Then you get more or less the bear incident straight from the comics. Where things change up is that Yukio then shows up. Uh, in this version, she works for Yashida who is now a powerful businessman who is dying. Uh, Logan is brought to Yashida, who offers to take the curse of immortality from Logan. Um, But when Logan refuses, uh, Yashida's associate Viper uh, takes his healing factor from him anyway. Uh, In the meantime, uh, Yashida apparently dies, leaving Wolverine to figure out what's going on in Japan, while his healing factor fails, and everyone is Tyler greeting Mariko for her inheritance. Now, um, I'll be honest, I really enjoyed this film for the most part. Uh, while I wasn't too crazy about the end twist, everything up to that is really good. Uh, you get the clash of cultures between Logan and, uh, and Japan, a very noirish mystery with Logan caught in the middle, and Logan having to get by without his healing factor. Um, I thought the romance between Logan and Mariko was handled quite well. Um, also, on rewatching the film, I realized how well shot it is. It, it clearly takes influence from the kind of cinematography you see on films like Blade Runner. And I think the extended cut does add uh, much more of a visceral impact. Mostly it adds violence and gore and gives you more blood. But I think uh, Logan is better where the training wheel is off anyway. Uh, what did you think of the Wolverine, Mike?
1: Well, I think I wish I had seen the extended cut. <laughs> but honestly, ah, yeah. <laughs> if I had as much experience with the Frank Miller stuff, I, I think I would have enjo- enjoyed it more. Um, I did have some experience with the storyline, though. And, and so I can't appreciate it. It's just not to the extent that you do. Um, Wolverine having multiple forms of martial arts in his background and decades upon decades of experience with which, uh, with each form is one of the things that really made Wolverine cool back in the day. Uh, but they didn't really go into that, and I was honestly let down a little. Um, I was hoping to see Logan go through some training and pick up some of that martial arts skill he's known for. Also, after getting the no background Lady Deathstrike in X2, I was hoping to finally see that background as well. Uh, But that said, it was an entertaining movie with some great fight scenes in it. I particularly liked the blue lightning in the sword fight. Uh, It felt like a callback to the old, uh, the blue lighting, sorry, in the sword fight. It felt like a callback to the old martial arts films and and even reminded me of the blue lighted, uh, the blue lighting shadowed scene from Kill Bill. Um, It's just not a favorite of mine. Uh, I love the scene where Logan and Mariko go to that hotel uh, for couples and there's that mission to Mars suite. <laughs> I can't help but think that's a Total Recall reference there.
0: I have no idea, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I will say that in the end credit scene of the Wolverine was supposed to lead into Days of Future Past, but it doesn't connect very well to the movie that we get. Um, Wolverine is at the airport and then he runs into Ian McKellen's Magneto and Patrick Stewart's Xavier, um, and who turns out to be alive. Uh, they warn Logan about a development that could lead to the end of mutant kind and then they all go off together. We never see what comes of that, but it doesn't click at all with the next film. Um, anyway, do you want to get into what actually happened in Days of Future Past, Mike? I do,
1: actually. Um, X-Men Days of Future Past uh, came out in two, uh, 2014 and it was directed and produced by Brian Singer and written by Simon Kinborg, Kinberg uh, from a story by Kinberg, Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughn. Uh, The film was based on uh, X-Men characters that appear in Marvel Comics and is the fifth mainline installment in the X-Men film series. It's a sequel to The Last Stand from 2006 and X-Men First Class 2011, a follow up to The Wolverine and the seventh installment overall. It stars an ensemble cast, including uh, Hugh Jackman, James McAvoy, uh, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Holly Berry, Ann Paquin, uh, Elliot Page, Peter... uh, dinklage uh ian mckellen and patrick stewart uh the story inspired by the 1981 uncanny x-men storyline days of future past by chris claremont and john uh john byrne focuses on two time periods with logan traveling back in time to 1973 to change history and prevent the events that result in an uh, unspeakable destruction for both humans and mutants
0: Days of Future Past is a story that gets revisited quite a bit in other media, and it's usually one of the better stories when it's adapted well. Uh, I think it's mainly because the concept is simple and it's cinematic. Uh, the X-Men are trying to stop a nightmare future from happening, and they have to change history so it doesn't. Now, they changed the focal point of the time travel to make Wolverine the central character. Originally, it was Rachel Summers who sent Kitty Pride back to the, in the comics. Now it's Kitty who sends Logan back, which, if I'm honest, doesn't make any real sense. Her powers don't work like that. But uh, looking past that, um, you get a fun little time travel story. A lot of it's about Mystique's growth arc and her finally turning uh, past violence and embracing Xavier's path again. That is all really well done. And if I'm honest, the scenes in the future are really entertaining to watch, and it's nice to see characters like Blink and Bishop. Um, I also thought it was interesting to cast uh, Peter Dinklage as Bolivar Trask. Um, I think that uh, casting that casting adds something to Trask as a character because now he's someone who's born different and trying to overcome that with his scientific genius. Even though some of it is doing the work of the film, it's an interesting way to look at Trask.
1: I, I thought that was an interesting choice as well, but I didn't pick up on that particular angle of it before. That That's interesting to think about. Oh, there are a lot of really cool
0: details in this film. Um, I'll also add that there's an extended cut to Days of Future Past called The Road Cut. It's worth checking out as there are some notable deleted scenes that are included in that version. Uh, The main reason uh, to check it out is because there's an entire subplot dealing with Rogue and what happened to her in the future. And it's worth including in the film. Um, There are also expanded action sequences in the future as well as smaller character moments here and there.
1: Wow. I I haven't even heard of that version. Uh, But I really like this movie. So an extended cut, especially about Rogue, sounds pretty awesome. Um, I like that they brought back Wolverine's Bone Claws for Days of Future Past. And and really, I like how it unfolded, kind of like the comics, at least as far as the order we got the info in. Uh, the original X-Men trilogy, Stryker, straight up says that he gave Wolverine his claws. In comics, for a couple of years, from 1991 to 1993, we all believed that Logan got his claws from uh, from Weapon X program. But in 1993, it was revealed that uh, all that Weapon X did was cover up the bone claws he already had with adamantium. That, that was a huge reveal back in the day.
0: Oh, yeah, true. Um, the bone claws were actually a Chris Claremont idea that went unused for years until the fatal attraction events in the comics. Um, He made extensive notes of things he wanted to do in advance, and a few of them slipped in a bit differently after he left. Um, Also, speaking of Claremont, he's actually in this movie as one of the senators on the committee, along with Len Wayne. Uh, It's very blink and miss it, but they are in the movie.
1: I, I saw that, actually. Well, I saw Chris Claremont anyway. Um, I have to look for Lynn Wayne um, But let's move on to the third film In the reboot franchise that came out in 2016, X-Men Apocalypse X-Men Apocalypse was directed And produced by Bryan Singer And written by Simon Kinberg uh, From a story by uh, Singer Kinberg Michael Dougherty and uh, Dan Harris The film stars the usual lineup Plus Oscar Isaac as Apocalypse uh, Ty Sheridan as Cyclops uh, Sophie Turner Who you might recognize that, uh, from her role As Sansa Stark in the Game of Thrones as Jean Grey uh, Lana Condor as Ju- uh, Jubilee Ben Hardy as Angel Or rather Archangel uh, Cody Smith McPhee as Nightcrawler Olivia Munn as Psylocke And Alexander Alexandra Ship as Storm in, this, in the film, the ancient mutant En-Sabad-Nur, uh, a.k.a. Apocalypse, was buried alive thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt, and by way of a a, of a right, modern-day followers revive him in 1983. Now, in sabad nur lives uh, by a philosophy that is a twisted version on the survival of the fittest idea brought to us by Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. Uh, Darwin merely said that the strongest, i.e. those that are best able to adapt to their surroundings will survive. Survive, but in sabnor despises and loathes the weak and sees them she seeks to destroy them so basically he takes that idea and turns it into the only only the strong should survive uh coming to coming to life and seeing the world as it is in believes that the the weak have taken over the world and he plans to wipe out modern civilization and take over the world thereby placing the strong once again in power uh, they don't describe what all he can do uh, but they do employ that his ability to transfer his consciousness into another body has allowed him to accumulate different mutant powers over the years as he would change bodies whenever he was close to death again and would choose mutant bodies to take
0: Hmm. Apocalypse is one of those villains who can be great but he needs to be used sparingly and effectively The problem with Pocky in the comics is that if he starts losing too much, his social Darwinist identity starts looking ridiculous or he becomes a hypocrite. After all, if Pocky keeps being defeated by the X-Men time after time, does that not make him the weak? Uh, So he needs to be successful enough so he doesn't start losing his edge. Now, um, I don't know what it is about Oscar Isaac that he constantly ends up in the roles of Egyptian-themed Marvel characters. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't think he was as good as Pocky as he was as Moon Knight, but I, I think more of that was on the writing than on him. Um, to be honest, the casting really is this not this movie's problem at all. Um, I thought the kids were well cast, um, and you had some pitch-perfect casting decisions, like Olivia Munn as Cyclops and Lana Condor as Jubilee. Again, I, I think to the extent that this movie stumbles, it's probably the script more than anything, because with this level of acting power, not to mention McAvoy and Fassbender,
1: this movie should have been much better than it turned out. I have to agree. Honestly, I think this movie, as my grandma used to say, got too big for its britches. Um, Apocalypse needed a couple of movies, in my opinion, to be really well done. Like, Honestly, I think he might have made like a good Thanos for the X-Men universe. Uh, Mm X-Men Apocalypse did some interesting things by introducing original. And as far as I, as far as giant size X-Men number one goes, founding members of the X-Men and the third film of the franchise right off the bat, we're introduced to Scott Summers, Aurora Monroe as a thief on the streets and Jean Grey. I really hate the whole rehashing of Jean's story. I mean, they brought nothing new to the character, but the actor who played her, Um, Uh, I I will talk more about this in the X-Men Dark Phoenix in a few minutes, but I just had to say what a letdown it it was, despite really liking the performance of Sophie Turner. Um, I particularly liked Aurora's introduction as a street thief. And when you see her join Apocalypse, I get flashbacks of the Shadow King, not just because uh, Apocalypse takes her in, but uh, I think about what Shadow King was able to do with Storm's powers. And I'm thinking, damn. (laughs) And Hmm. speaking of Storm's powers... That is something that I think the franchise as a whole fails on. And I honestly, it just feels like lazy writing to do this way, do it that way. But but Storm can manipulate the weather. That is her mutant power. She is not black lightning. She can't shoot lightning out of her fingers. And if she's indoors, well, it's kind of difficult to have a weather effect in an indoor situation, as weather happens all outside. Uh, Yet time and time again in the franchise, she somehow controls weather inside of buildings. And on more than one occasion, she's shooting lightning out of her hands.
0: Lightning with my hands. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't get the fascination that Hollywood has with recasting the Dark Phoenix saga. Um, Even even comics writers sometimes fall into this trap. Uh, I think part of Jean's problem as a character is that she keeps coming back to this point and not moving meaningfully beyond it. Uh, I think Sophie Turner was fine in the role, but as you say, uh, we saw all of this before. Um, Agreed on Storm's powers as well, uh, they really aren't as thought out all too well in this film. Um, Aurora's powers work at their best when she's out in the open, and she's at her weakest when she's confined. In part because Aurora was claustrophobic, which is another point that so many writers either forget or get wrong about her. But um, I think it's kind of rolled over me by the time I saw this film, because I've gotten a bit too used to writers completely getting Storm wrong
1: over the years. <laughs> that, that makes sense. You, you just kind of get numb to it after a while. Um, one thing that seems to change based upon what is needed in the plot is Magneto's powers. Um, sometimes his power is that he controls metal. Like when he was able to take those rails off the track and split them into little strips small enough to fit into the wiring of the sentinel so, so, so that he can control them in days of future past or, or how his powers are obviously magnetic in X-Men Apocalypse because of what he ends up doing with the Earth. Those are clearly magnetic lines. I, I will also say though that I genuinely felt bad for Eric Lyncher saving that man's life only to expose himself Uh, and endanger his family, Um, to have people turn on him because he's a mutant and the guy who took the cabinet prisoner with the intent to kill them 10 years prior, uh, people that had become his friends. Um, It was an accident, but then to shoot that arrow and kill his wife and daughter in one move, uh, that would break most anyone, I imagine. Uh, Then when he explains that he genuinely tried to do things the right way, and in return, humans took everything from him. Uh, Now he plans to take everything from them. That may be wrong, but it's most certainly understandable reaction to losing your wife and child on the same day after trying so hard to reform. I think Eric said it best when Charles tried to remind him that there was good in him. And Eric said, whatever you thought you saw in me, I buried with my family. Of course, we see him attempt Reformation again in later films, but it sure felt permanent in that particular scene.
0: Yeah, it did. Uh, What you described sounds like the uh, typical type of inconsistency we see with Magneto generally. I mean, Magneto's powers tend to fluctuate quite a bit, depending on who's writing and what version we're talking about. Uh, Sometimes he just moves metal around, and sometimes he manipulates energy to a godlike degree. Uh, He also tends to bounce back and forth a lot in terms of his character, too. But he definitely takes a darker turn with this film. Um, I think the idea was to reflect what happened to his daughter Anya in the comics as a way of putting him back on the darker path. Still, as much as he kind of embodies the revolving door heel face turn, I'll give them this. I mean, Michael Fassbender nails these heart-wrenching emotional scenes. He really is the best thing in these movies, even when we're critical of the way Magneto is being written.
1: Ah, well said. With as much as I like some of the other cast members in the reboot franchise, Fassbender is definitely the standout performance in the series. Um, So let's turn our attention to Logan, the last of the Wolverine films,
0: and Hugh Jackman's swung song on the character, until now. Uh, This is the second Wolverine film that uh, Jackman did with uh, James Mangold, who now has a lot more creative control in the project. Uh, He's one of the main writers on the film as well as the director. Um, I think that definitely comes across with Logan, which is one of those rare movies that moves beyond being a mainstream superhero film and becomes a strongly artistic uh, uh, director-driven film. Now, um, Logan was very loosely based on Old Man Logan, which was a mini-series by uh, Mark Miller and Steve McNiven. Uh, I haven't actually read Old Man Logan, though from what I hear, it gets pretty insane. But uh, like a lot of Miller-ridden projects, Hollywood took Old Man Logan and got to the heart of what worked while removing a lot of the dross. Uh, So the basic idea of this film is that we see an older Logan in 2029 uh, taking care of an ailing 90-year-old Charles Xavier, whose telepathic powers are out of control. Uh, Logan is retired and living as a limo driver, uh, trying to make money to support themselves and survive while they're on the run. Um, Mutants are mostly gone now, the X-Men no longer exist, and the survivors are trying to keep their heads down. Uh, Logan's world gets thrown upside down when a woman named Gabriela Lopez uh, tries to get uh, Logan's help in getting a girl named Laura uh, to South Dakota. It turns out that uh, Lopez was working for the remnants of uh, Weapon X, who were experimenting on Mexican children, and uh, that Laura's uh, Logan's biological daughter. Uh, This sets up Logan making his escape with Charles and Laura going on a cross-country road trip
1: while staying ahead of Weapon X? Um, Maybe I'm being semantical here, Uh, but Laura, aka X-23, is not technically Logan's daughter in the sense that he had sex with a woman and bore a child, or even in the sense of in vitro fertilization. Uh, Logan is Laura's father in the sense that Weapon X had his genetic material and used it to create well, a clone, basically. Uh, there would be a biological connection with Logan. I'm not disputing that. It's the terminology I take issue with. Uh, but the, but that aside, I, I love the whole unchained violence of Logan. Uh, there are some shots in, in that uh, where Logan and Laura uh, is sticking their blades into people that I will never forget. Uh, one in particular was when Logan put his claws through the back of that guy's head and we see them come through his that guy's face (laughs) that was just Mm. awesome yeah (laughs) those fights with that wolverine clone and laura and logan were pretty sweet uh i really enjoyed those i am a little confused about eden though uh did people get the idea from reading the comics and just do it for real or is there some kind of weird comic book writers making reality thing going on there
0: um, you're right about Laura being a bioengineered cr- uh, creation of Weapon X. I mean, the Weapon X program uh, had kept uh, DNA samples of Logan from Alkali Lake that were used to create both Laura and the X-24 clone. Uh, Gabriela Lopez uh, refers to Laura as Logan's daughter, and that's their relationship in the movie, so i am just been going with that for simplicity's sake. Um, I'm still not entirely sure about the comics. Um, I think it's partly a meta narrative about comics versus reality, uh, the idea that there's truth to be found in comics, even if the outward elements seem silly or ridiculous. Um, in, in universe, it seems like the comics were being used as an underground code where they're based on things that are true and dressed up in comic book elements. Uh, but most people would look at these things as Logan does and dismiss them, while the children would see value in the comics that the adults don't. But I could be way off base on that.
1: No, no, that that totally makes sense. In fact, story-wise, it, it probably has to be something like that.
0: Okay. Um, But Logan's probably going to go down as the best of the Fox films. I I enjoy Deadpool a lot more from a pure entertainment perspective, but Logan is the deepest and the most textured. Uh, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart are always great, and Daphne Keene as Laura holds her own with both of them, which is impressive. Uh, Also, Logan gets such a great ending as a character in this film. Uh, I can't blame Jackman for not wanting to come back to this version of Wolverine, because I don't know how he'd ever top this film, um, I think it's safe to say that Logan was the true ending of the Fox era of X-Films for a lot of people, myself included. Um, but apparently Hugh Jackman's coming back to do Deadpool 3 in the MCU. So we'll see how that turns out when it happens.
1: As far as a serious movie goes, I can agree that Logan is definitely up there as far as quality and depth. And it was the perfect ending for Logan's story arc, even if it ignored the Wolverine where his adamantium claws were cut off. I, I will also say that I enjoyed the film more on my recent rewatch of it than I did the first time. I was initially annoyed by Laura's constant screeching. I mean, like every time she did anything, yeah. Uh, but it, <laughs> it was not as bad as the second time around. Uh, so I might end up fully agreeing with you on that one day, though we get, with, with a couple more rewatches. Uh, I got a strong feeling. This one will grow on me.
0: Uh, I can totally understand that. I mean, it's a film that ages well and holds its value. <laughs> Anyway, uh, there were also a couple live-action shows that Fox made
1: uh, before the Disney acquisition, so uh, why don't we talk about those? Uh, Sure. Uh, The first live-action TV series involving Marvel's mutants called Legion uh, also came out in 2017 and ran until 2019. The series was created by Noah Hockley for FX, based on the Marvel Comics character uh, David Holler, a.k.a. Legion, the son of Professor X. Legion is an Omega-level mutant with dissociative identity disorder. On a fundamental level, David has the ability to alter reality and time on a cosmic scale at will. But because of his DID, his abilities vary based on what personality is in control at any given moment. The core personality of legions, over a thousand personalities, is David Holler himself. As such, David generally does not manifest mutant abilities, but must access various personalities to use their power, sometimes losing control of himself to that personality. The first alternate personality to manifest was uh, Jamal Karami, I believe that is, and he was a telepath. He was telepathic. Others include, but are not limited to, the very violent and uh, fiercely independent Jack Wayne, a telekinetic, and Cindy, a pyrokinetic. It would take a long time to cover over, uh, uh, go over the legion of uh, personalities and their pers- and their powers. But suffice it to say that Legion could pretty much have any power he can imagine at any time.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Legion is a character that uh, was first introduced in an arc of New Mutants during the uh, Chris claremont uh, Bill Sinkevich run. But uh, though I haven't really seen much of the show, it sounds like they got the basic premise of the character right. Uh, The only exception is that Jamel in the comics was a separate, real person who David had absorbed into his own mind, and then Jamel took over the telepathic ability. Um, Anyway, David's a character I've always felt a little bad for because his father was rarely involved in his life, and he was loved with people who couldn't cope with his massive level of psychic power. So there was nobody really equipped to help him control his power, which led to his mind uh, fracturing. And then David's mind cracked due to trauma from the violence that he saw when he was living in Israel with his mother and his godfather. Um, We've seen him get better since then, uh, but he's always been a powerful but very unstable character. It seems like the show respected the comics version of David in a general sense, even if they departed from it a bit.
1: I'm glad to hear that, actually, uh, because I like the show. However, before... Before you get all excited, uh, Legion was set in an alternate timeline uh, from the X-Men film series. So unfortunately, uh, this 27 episode three season series is not Fox X-Men canon, uh, despite being produced by FX Productions in association with Marvel Television. I have to say that while I did not watch all three seasons, I did watch the first season while it was on the air, and I really enjoyed it. Legion has a very horror feel to the series, and you know I like that, at least as far as the first season goes. First off, David Holler, aka Legion, was diagnosed with schizophrenia at a young age and has been a patient in various psychiatric hospitals since the diagnosis. When we find him in the first season, the powerful telepathic mutant Amal Farouk, aka the Shadow King has attached himself to the parasite uh, uh, like a parasite onto David and we see some pretty scary scenes as the Shadow King takes more and more control of his mind this was genuinely scary stuff and as a viewer you're left to wonder how much of what we're seeing is really happening and how much of it is only happening in David's mind. The Shadow King ends up being the big bad for the series as he tries to take David's body uh, to get David's great power which David doesn't fully get for most of the series Uh, but the mind warping weirdness does not stop there david meets his girlfriend sydney or sid uh, barrett in the psychiatric facility and they fall deeply in love but here's the catch sid's mind trades places with that of anyone she touches with hers entering their body and vice versa so they can't touch at all and when they do, things do not go well. In the background of all this, we see David being hunted by a group called Division Three, uh, but is saved by a group of mutants called Summerland who tell them that he is a mutant and pretend to be his friend, but they are working with the Shadow King to take David's body.
0: Oh, that sounds fairly interesting. Uh, maybe I should go back and catch up on that show. Uh, Farouk is definitely the right villain for a Legion show, uh, given that he has a deep hatred of Xavier and that he and David are both powerful telepaths. But... It sounds like they started with a comic accurate premise and then just kind of went their own way with the show after that. I mean, which is fine for what they're doing. Um, I don't think the Sid character exists in the comics as leaks as I can think of. Uh, Legion's love interest in the comics was uh, Ruth Aldean, a.k.a. Blindfold, who's a telepathic precog. But it sounds like the way that that they did some really cool stuff on that
1: show and it may be worth checking out. I would certainly recommend the show. It it is one trippy, wild ride that at times reminds me of Grant Morrison-level craziness, uh, but with a very dark twist. I I might even categorize Legion as superhero horror. Uh, But there was another mutant show that came out around the exact same time that I believe you wanted to tackle, Steve.
0: Yes, and that leads us into The Gifted. Um, The Gifted ran from 2017 to 2019, and unfortunately it only got two seasons. Uh, Generally, it was a show that focused on a lot of lesser-known X characters because the main X-Men had disappeared by then. Uh, The idea surrendered around a normal family uh, whose teenage children are mutants, and then they uh, connect with a mutant underground movement uh, while the family goes on the run from the government. Uh, Showing the the mutant struggle from a normal human level was a good idea. I think the way that they did it worked pretty well. Um, I didn't, unfortunately, finish the series, but I got a decent way through the first season, and it was a solid show if you're an X fan. Um, If you're a fan of the second string X characters, I mean, you're going to like a lot of these cast members. Uh, Polaris, Blink, uh, John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird, uh, the Stepford Cuckoos, uh, and Sage. Uh, There are plenty of uh, Blink and Miss It uh, type of cameos of various X characters here and there as well. And honestly, I thought that they really did a solid job on all those characters. Um, Emma Dumont especially did a wonderful job as Polaris. And while it was more hinted at, the show did acknowledge that she's the daughter of Magneto, at least on a subtle level. Um, the main family was likable as well. I mean, Natalie Allen Lent came to prominence in her role as Lauren Strucker, but it hopes that Amy Acker uh, played her mother and she's a virtual actress and she owned that
1: role. agree. Starting out with that one close family really brought me into the story and got me emotionally invested. Plus, seeing the struggles of the kids and the family, I instantly felt for the mutants of the underground movement you mentioned. Uh, The show was really dynamic and and worked really well despite the large cast of characters. Uh, Just a great show, in my opinion, although I wasn't able to finish it either. I do plan to go back and watch the whole series again at some point, though. It's on a list of about a dozen shows like that I have to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: know what you mean. I mean, they really made this work, though, and you fell for these people. Um, Although there are some uh, clear changes made to the backgrounds of some of the characters. I mean, the main family the show follows are the Struckers, who uh, in the comics are connected heavily to Hydra. But uh, this version doesn't have any of that involved from what I saw. Although there were little winks and nods for comics fans. I mean, you had some odd pairings like Polaris and this new character called Eclipse, who seemed to be this weird mashup of Sunspot and, and Havoc. Uh, It's a shame that this show only lasted a couple of seasons because they had something really good going with this, but the Fox Network has a bad habit of canceling good shows before they can really hit their peak, and Gifted was sadly another
1: victim of that. That really was too bad. I I felt the same way about the animated show Wolverine and the X-Men, but they canceled that too. I bet I've actually used the phrase, damn it, Fox, at least six or seven times. (laughs) But let's move on to happier discussion with X-Men Dark Phoenix, which came out uh, the the year that uh, X-Men Gifted ended in 2019 as the sequel to 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. X-Men Dark Phoenix was the seventh and final X-Men franchise installment and the 12th film overall, including the Wolverine trilogy and the two Deadpool movies. However, there was an actual sequel plan that would have made it eight films in the main x-men series however the walt disney company acquired 21st century fox and its assets in march of 2019 which reverted the rights to x-men properties back to marvel i have to wonder if we weren't going to get mr senator mr sinister and the marauders in the sequel with that in credit scene in x-men apocalypse
0: um, I think there were some plans for Sinister that never materialized. Uh, he was also hit to have been involved with the events of New Mutants film as well. And the logical next step after this movie, uh, had the Foxverse continue, should have been the Mutant Massacre. Uh, that's one of the few really big stories that hasn't been adapted yet. But sadly, the Marvel acquisition put it into that. And I think that it also really hurt uh, Dark Phoenix as well. But why don't we get into the details on how it was produced before we get into that?
1: Sure, Steve. Dark Phoenix was written, co-produced, and directed by Simon Kinberg in his feature film directorial debut, and stars the cast from X-Men Apocalypse with a few additions, including Jessica Chastain as Volk, uh, the leader of the uh, shifting alien race known as the Dabari, who seeks to capture and destroy the Phoenix, Uh, and Otto Asando as uh, Jones, Volk's second in command. Uh, Halston Sage briefly appears as Dazzler in the character's first cinematic appearance. Veteran X-Men writer Chris Clamrott makes a cameo appearance as White House guest during the scene in which Xavier accepts his award for rescuing the crew of the space uh, shuttle Endeavor. Uh, the film was dedicated to the memory of X-Men co-creator Stan Lee, who died on November 12, 2018.
0: Uh, rest in peace, Stan the Man. Uh, that was a nice tribute. But on a more positive note, I will say that I was glad to see Halston Sage's Dazzler. And I didn't even know it was her at first. Um, but as a huge fan of the Orville and uh, her character on that show, it was a n- it was very nice to see her do a cameo. Um, part of the problem, though, with this movie is that the Disney acquisition made a mess of the rights issues. Um, Jessica Chastain's character is an absolute mess in this film, and it's through no fault of hers. Um, I'd heard initially she was going to be a Lalandra, and that might have been fine. But as it turns out, uh, she wasn't supposed to be Dabari at all. She was going to be a Skrull. But then apparently there were concerns because the original ending was too close to what to what Avengers did, not to mention Captain Marvel was already uh, using the scrolls. So everything to do with the scrolls got a last minute rewrite, and they had to get this film out before the rights reverted to Disney. So the result was a rushed Frankenstein mess of a film. Um, the Debari thing uh, wasn't inherently a terrible idea necessarily, but it was kind of putting the heart before the horse. Um, the Dabari in the original Dark Phoenix saga was a race of asparagus people that Gina's Dark Phoenix wiped out when she made their the Star Go Supernova. And the surviving Dabari have made attempts to get their revenge on the Phoenix and on Jean Grey. But here they're part of the catalyst for Dark Phoenix, rather than the tragedy that occurs as a result, and that really changes the whole narrative. Um, I will be fair to this movie, though. Uh, the first act of Dark Phoenix I honestly enjoy a lot. Uh, the space mission in the first third of the movie is really well done, and it's good to see the X-Men actually be superheroes. Uh, they embrace classic costumes they have the goodwill of the public and you get some fun stuff in the vein of astonishing x-men in the short time it lasts unfortunately after that the plot happens and the movie goes completely to hell by the end of act two (laughs) the first third of dark phoenix could have been a really great movie and the rest of it goes from bad to worse anything you had to
1: do with the phoenix store just makes a mess of things um mike did you want to explain where they went
0: wrong with this
1: Oh, I sure do, Steve. I I love that. Then the plot happened. That was awesome. (laughs) Um, So if you're like me, you have to wonder, like I did earlier, uh, when Jean did her Phoenix thing in X-Men Apocalypse, why the hell do we need another Dark Phoenix story? Uh, Well, I found out what the creators were thinking and doing it. I'll tell you right now that I do prefer this version of the Dark Phoenix story. However, as a writer, I disagree with the idea that we'll just ignore previous storylines and characters when we don't like how it ended up. Uh, So part of me feels like they blew their chance when they had it. Uh, But here's what writer Simon Kinberg was thinking rehashing the old story. After X-Men Days of Future Past erased the events of X-Men The Last Stand uh, from the series' timeline. Kinberg expressed interest in making a version that was more faithful to Claremont and Byrne's original story than his previous attempt with The Last Stand, which even Kinberg and co-writer Zach Penn were unimpressed with. I did like that it was actually the Phoenix Force, at, at least as I remember it, a pure and unimaginably powerful cosmic force, the spark that gave life to the universe and the flame that consumed the Dabari home. World, uh, Far from a solar flare, the Phoenix Force was drawn to Jean Grey, whereas it had destroyed all that it had come in contact with before. Uh, it did this because, as we know, Jean's powers far exceed even her own knowledge of them. And she, among the a trillion to among a trillion to the people of among a trillion to the power of a trillion lives that it had come across lives that it had come across up until that point was very special book talked about teaching gene how to control what is what is inside her and uh with that the phoenix force she could create the whole new world uh turn to dust turn dust into water and water into life then she ties it all back to the very evolution of the x gene by saying it was gene's destiny to be something great to evolve into the greatest force. In the galaxy that is pretty much how I remember the Phoenix Force and and it choosing Jean. Uh, Though I seem to remember hearing people talk about it after the fact rather than actually seeing the Phoenix Force choose her in the comics. However, Jean in the film did not go as far as Jean in the comic uh, that I remember. She didn't kill a whole planet, for instance, nor did she sacrifice herself to save the universe. Uh, She said in her own words that this was not the end of her or or the X-Men and that she had simply evolved beyond the world. Um, seeing the phoenix flying in the sky at the last scene certainly solidifies the idea that there was no sacrifice there. It was an evolution. So I have to believe that Kinberg was referring to the phoenix force itself and how she gets her powers. I've got to ask, Steve, did did Kinberg accomplish what he wanted to do with the Dark Phoenix story? Is it more faithful to the original, in your opinion?
0: Well, neither of these films was really that faithful, in my view. I mean, the gold standard is still held by X-Men, the animated series version which uh, got the general direction of that story beat for beat. I mean, it included Jean's temptation by Mastermind, uh, the battle with uh, the Hellfire Club, including classic moments like Logan falling in the sewer, uh, Jean losing herself to the Phoenix, the X-Men trying to save her, and then the battle with uh, the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. Um, Everything Claremont and Byrne did is in those episodes, even though there were small changes here and there. But X-Men the Animated Series had the room to build the story properly, and it didn't try to cram everything together in two and a half hours. I don't think that this is a story that can be properly done in a single film. And every time Hollywood tries to do Dark Phoenix in live action, they just show why you can't do it that way. But is it more faithful than X3? Um, I would say generally, yes. At least the relationship uh, between Scott and Gene was front and center in, in, in Dark Phoenix, as opposed to shoehorning Logan in the Scott role. At least Gene gets more agency here rather than having the story be about Logan. Um, there are a few elements that come from the Dark Phoenix saga, uh, like the Dabari, but both versions are, are all in all pretty poor reflections of a classic story uh, that failed to get it right uh, just in different ways. Um, maybe one day they'll do Dark Phoenix justice on the big screen, but as long as they think they can condense a huge comic epic like this in a two or three hour film, uh, we're probably going to see clunkers like this. Uh, the Dark Phoenix saga is just not built to work in this format. Uh, there are plenty of other classic stories
1: they can still do without going back to this well. So they should just go and do those. I. Can certainly understand that point of view as as a longtime comic book fan. I I have come to accept that changes of all sorts are bound to happen in any adaptation, and it doesn't bother me when when that wasn't the when it wasn't comics accurate. Uh, part of me wants to say that if you want it to be exactly like the source material, you should probably just read the source material. But as but as I said, I can also totally respect your point of view on it. I personally thought it was a better version uh, than X3, and I enjoyed the film. As for another potential Phoenix film, I, I don't have any interest in seeing this story on film again. Uh, like you mentioned, I'll watch X-Men the animated series if I want the best version. Uh, but there was another film in the Fox Mutant timeline, and I believe you wanted to talk about that. Yes, and it's another mixed
0: bag sadly. Uh, the New Mutants was um, officially the last film out of the Fox Fable, Perhaps for the best since it wasn't the disaster that uh, Dark Phoenix turned out to be. So The Fox series ends on an okay note, which is probably a better place to leave it. Uh, with uh, New Mutants, the basic idea of the film was that it was essentially a horror film with superpowers. Um, I was a bit torn on that approach. I mean, New Mutants is a team that allows you to do almost anything from fantasy to sci-fi to time travel or straight superhero or whatever you want. You absolutely can do Stephen King-style uh, horror with it, too. Um, the Demon Bear Saga is very much a, a story in that vein. Unfortunately, I think it's a bit limiting to think of New Mutants mainly in those terms, and I think the Demon Bear may be such a defining story that it could put New Mutants in a box the way that Dark Phoenix does for Jean Grey. Still, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing New Mutants as a horror film, uh, if done right, and I just went along with it. Um, the New Mutants uh, was in uh, development hell for years, though, and it probably shows. Lauren Shuler Donner had been interested in the idea of the New Mutants since uh, 2009, But uh, Josh Boone pitched a comic based on the Claremonts and Kevich books to her in 2014, and then he got the project approved. And if I'm honest, I'd rather see that film over what we ultimately got. Uh, But apparently the script had been in development for three years, um, only entering pre-production in 2017. And then uh, characters and casting went back and forth for a while as the script changed. Uh, They were talking about James McAvoy as Xavier being in it, and then various X Men like Storm or Colossus in the mentor role. And then they decided on Cecilia Reyes. And they were originally talking to Rosaria Dawson until they decided on uh, Alice Braga. The main cast would also include um, Anya Taylor Joy as Magic, uh, Maisie Williams from Games of Thrones as uh, Wolf Spain, uh, Charlie Hayden as Cannonball, uh, Blue Hunt as uh, Danny Moonstar, and Henry Zaga as Sunspot. Uh, after filming, the release date was pushed back several times. It was originally moved back from January 2018 to February 19 for some reshoots. Then uh, Fox pushed back the release date again, to August 2019, because it was too close to Dark Phoenix's release date. Then Disney acquired Fox, and they decided to push the movie back yet again, this time to April of 2020. There were also changes that Disney wanted to make, uh, because they wanted it uh, closer to the versions that attest well in screenings. Uh, So, in the end, the movie was completed in March of 2020, after all that, and the film was finally released in August of 2020. (laughs) Mike, what were your thoughts on The New Mutants
1: once it finally came out? (laughs) Um, But honestly, I was pretty let down. Maybe I expected a lot more from an X-Men film once the rights reverted back to Marvel. But here we are with The New Mutants a year later, and things were worse. I mean, it was okay, but I I didn't love any of the characters, and I I honestly don't plan on watching it again.
0: That's a reaction that I completely understand, especially if you don't have any attachment to the New Mutants from the comics. This is a very uh, divisive film, and reactions tend to depend on what you bring into the movie with you, if that makes sense. If you don't have any attachment to the source material, this movie probably won't change your mind. Um, I'll also acknowledge that this is a flawed movie, and even though there's a fair bit that I liked, uh, there were also things that I really didn't care for. So... Let me start with the things that let me down a bit. Um, while I feel like Magic and Wolfsbane were both really well cast, I felt like they could have done better with Sunspot and Cecilia Reyes. Uh, both of them are black characters in the comics. I mean, Afro-Brazilian and African-American, respectively. And the casting didn't reflect that. Uh, the, sc- the, the script didn't serve them well either. Um, changing Sunspot's powers to make him a pyrokinetic was a bit weak. Uh, his actual power is that he's a solar battery who turns sunlight into physical strength. Uh, the writing actually does Cecilia pr- pretty dirty as a character with the inch She is not a villain in the comics. And in fact, she was a highly ethical doctor when she was with the X Men. So turning Cecilia into a pawn of the Essex Corporation, which is in fair and is probably run by Sinister, is a complete disservice. Uh, Danny is also way overpowered in the story as well, though I get why they used her as a catalyst to make the horror work. That said, I don't think the movie is terrible, just fair to middling in the scene of things. Uh, Magic is perfectly cast to the point where she looks like she walked off the screen or off the comics page. Um, I think that uh, Maisie Williams was pretty good as Wolfsbane. Um I thought that Charlie Heaton as Cannonball wasn't too bad either. Uh, there are some scenes where I felt like the movie did capture the flavor of the kids, like the truth or dare scene. Um, some of the scenes where they confronted the kids with their respected past works, like Rain being haunted by the ghost of Reverend Craig, uh, who in, her, in the comics is her father. Um, though I think that the, that particular bit requires you to know a little bit about Rain's backstory to get a feel for what she's about. Um, the Demon bear uh, came across really well in the end scenes, too. And it was nice to see Dro- Lockheed the Draftkin briefly. Um, I did think the sinister connection to the school was interesting, even if the execution wasn't great. It was It's a shame that we'll never see what was up with that. So while this movie has its share of flaws, I mean, there are some worthwhile points in its favor as well. I just wish my favorite team had been done
1: better in live action, but maybe one day they'll get a second chance. Uh, We can only hope now that they're going to be part of the MCU. Um, Overall, I think that the X-Men franchise from 21st Century Fox was pretty good and it it, it, in fact, has a, a movie both Steve and I put on our top 10, perfect 10 films list uh, in the form of Deadpool. Uh, I feel like uh, the writing, for, for the most part, uh, was good. And they got some really good people in their casting choices. Some perfect level casting akin to some of MCU's picks. I, I have to say that my favorites uh, from the films are are obviously the Deadpool movies, but also X-Men 2000, X-Men United, uh, X-Men First Class, uh, Days of Future Past, and Dark Phoenix uh what's more is that I I have enjoyed the series that have come out too even if I did not finish them all uh That is more of a a reflection of my busy schedule and sometimes fickle taste than it is a reflection of the quality of the shows. I particularly liked X-Men, the animated series, uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, and The Gifted uh, from the shows. Uh, But those are just my favorites. I also liked X-Men Evolution, Legion, and Legion 2. Um, How about you, Steve? Uh, How would you sum up your thoughts on Fox's X-Men?
0: Uh, the Fox X-Men universe gets a bad rap from certain quarters, and it's unfortunate because there are many great films and shows from that era. Uh, the original Deadpool is indeed one of the perfect 10 films, and Logan is unquestionably a brilliantly made film. In fact, both uh, Wolverine sequels by James Mangold are really good. Uh, of the main X-Men films, I'd lean towards uh, Days of Future Past, uh, First Class, and the first two films from the uh, 2000s trilogy. Um, I think that I'd agree with you on the shows. Um But X-Men the Animated Series is the gold standard of X-Men adaptations in my view. But I agree that The Gifted did it really well. And Wolverine and the X-Men did a solid job with the characters too from what I've seen. So that's a pretty good track record for a 20-year run on the franchise.
1: I can definitely agree with that. So that was a long one. (laughs) <laughs> i honestly didn't know uh we had so much to say about the x-men franchise and the comics but i'm sure glad we broke it into two episodes <laughs> uh thanks for hanging out with us folks and i'd like to take this moment to thank our uh our patrons who make this podcast possible i hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us on orp today i know that steve and that steve and i have had fun making this episode if you've had fun too we invite you to please share this episode and help us get the word out
0: That is indeed a big help and uh, we want to thank you in advance for your support of both listening and sharing this episode. Uh, It makes a lot to us Uh, and we'll see you in two weeks.